Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Study together verses 1 through 14. Let's read God's word together. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had left, uh, had fled to David, to Keilah, He had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down against Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Aviathar the priest, Bring me the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about six hundred, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Thus saith the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, your ear is always turned to hear the cries of your people. That Lord, your hand is strong and your arm is not short. O Lord, you are a good and a gracious protector of all who call upon you, Lord. You are the shepherd of the sheep. O Lord, you bear the crook and the rod of iron, and you defend your people. Lord in heaven, as we come to this scripture, we pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, as people, thousands of years separated from this event, Lord, would we know you as the living God, the same yesterday and today, the God who cares for his people with a heart of eternal love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
David has been running for his life, and Saul has hunted him as he would hunt a beast. He's been encamped in a cave, this sort of rock outcropping called the Cave of Adulam. If you were to literally translate that, that means something like a refuge or a hiding place or a a fortress. And it's in this unique place in a valley near to the city of Jerusalem, a valley that it is thought at least was considered to be a valley of spirits. And so, so many of the people locally wouldn't venture into there. And there's been where David has been. That's where the Lord drew men to him, an army as it were, or a militia to come near to him in the defense of the man who would be the king of the people of God. And if you were to look back in chapter 22 to verse 5, you would see that David had an engagement with a prophet of God named Gad. Make sure the pronunciation's clear. And the prophet of God named Gad told him to leave from that safe place and go into the territory of Judah, into the forest of Hereth. And David, in obedience to the word of God delivered by the prophet, did go. And there he has been, and that's where we find him in the text, in this, in this uh, forest, presumably. But since David arrived, terrible things have occurred. I mentioned a few moments ago that the previous chapter ended on a very terrible note. We read about Saul in a demonic rage coming against the prophets of God and the priest uh, in the city of Nob. Not only did he kill those who were priests, but likewise he killed all the women and the children and all of the livestock and laid the entire city to destruction. For what reason, though? Because they aided David in giving him bread and the sword of Goliath that he took whenever he had slain the giant. And so here's David in the midst of a horrific, terrible atrocity running for his life from an insane king hiding in a forest within the king's kingdom without aid other than the six men who have come to him and he's heard news of a terrible circumstance. One of his enemies is enraged, but another, the Philistines, they are encroaching, they are coming in. They're fighting against the people of Israel, specifically the people of the city of Keilah, a town of Judah, his people. These aren't just any people. These are not just Israelites. These are Judahites, and that is who David is. These are presumably those of some relation. And he's caught between a rock and a hard place with so much difficulty And on one hand, the question is, should he run to the people that he's related to, the people the Lord has assigned him to at Keilah? Because if he does, he'll be exposed. He'll have no protection, nowhere to hide. He'll be there where Saul can come upon him like water crashing on a rock. Or should he hide in cowardice and let the people that God has commissioned him to lead and care for perish? What should he do? And it's a hard situation, but I believe that the simple and wonderful testimony hasn't got to do with Saul, it hasn't got to do with Philistines, it has to do with the God of heaven. David should obey the word of God. And so as we study this together, I want you to see 
three things from the text of Scripture. First, seeking the Lord's direction, verses 1 and 2. And then in verses uh, 3 through 5, obeying the Lord's direction. Obeying the Lord's direction. And then in verses 6 through 14, relying on the word of God or relying on the Lord's direction. And so in verses 1 and 2, we find David in a hard situation. There's nothing easy about it. He's got enemies to his left and enemies to his right, and he's got the call of the God of heaven. If he's to be faithful, he's going to be a defender of the people. For what does a king do? Well, first and foremost, he bears the sword for the defense of his subjects. Every good king does that. He's a defender, a commander of armies. But who is it that has commissioned him? It's not that he's been called of the people. No, he's been called of God. The calling is heavenly, and the Lord is the one who is dangerous. He's the one that directs everything. He's the one that gives the sun its rising and its setting. Likewise, the night and the day are commanded by his holy will. He raises up kings, and the scriptures tell us that he also turns the hearts of kings like rivers. It's nothing for the Lord. And so, yes, he's got an enemy to his left, an enemy to the right, and he's got an amazingly dangerous God who demands the obedience of his servant. But again, there's David. He's only human, and he's a man pursued by a madman. Not only any madman, but a madman with an army, and a madman that he himself has sworn to obey, and he himself himself has sworn uh, to serve, that he is a subject of Saul. After all, this man is the anointed of God. He's not just like anybody. No, he's his king. Yet he's a king that hates him. And it's it's a wild and difficult situation. What should a person do when a person finds themselves backed into a corner with no good option, with no easy situation, with no clear decision? You go out and Saul comes to get you. You go out, the Philistines overtake you. You don't go out, the Lord takes you out. What do you do? You pray. You seek the direction of the Lord. And that's the calling of every Christian. To be a people who would be led by the high king of heaven. The one who directs all things. Who is not like a pity and pitiful prince of the earth, a God who absolutely rules and reigns at all places, at all times, whether he's reigning over David in exile in the cave of Hadjulam or he's there in the forest of Hereth in the midst of the people of Judah. David inquires of God. And I want to say that this phrase, the inquiring of God, we've encountered this and in 1 Samuel already, and you may have seen it at other places in the Old Testament, it's a specific phrase. And uh, as it may imply, it means to ask of God. But up until this point, who have we seen inquiring of God? We've seen priests be, uh, doing this. And in the Old Testament, there's a number of ways that priests are described as inquiring of God. And I'll say one, we should presume, and I think we have an evidence of it here in the text before us, is simple prayer. It's simple prayer. Uh, there are then other ways, uh, the divine casting of lots that you see in the Old Testament, or the consultation of these spiritual stones called the Urim and the Tumim. 
these things that are rather mysterious, even in the biblical text. We're only told so much about them. But whenever we are told about them or whenever they are used by the people of God, I'll just say the Bible mentions it. So David is here being said to have inquired of God, what should I do, a man before the face of God? What should I do in the midst of Saul, the crazy man, and the Philistines coming to take and to rob and to attack the people of Judah? What should I do, Lord? Shall I go and attack these Philistines? Now, to me, that sounds so much like a prayer. One of the things that I've been very blessed uh, by the academic study that most of you know that I've taken up uh, in the past couple of years is I've gotten to read the pastoral lives of so many ministers and great men. And whenever the man that I'm reading and uh, studying, Robert Bruce of Kinnaird, whom, yes, we named our daughter after, um, his prayers are described as strong bolts shot to heaven. Like an arrow just let fly into the heavens. Quick, powerful, potent, hitting the, the target that they're intended to hit. And there's something of that that we see in David. It's not a, a long prayer. It's not a confused prayer. It's not a prayer of panic. But it's one that believes that God hears and that God answers. Shall I go and attack the Philistines as if he's having a conversation? As close as from me to you with the Lord his God. Lord, tell me what to do. You tell me to go out against the Philistines, I'm going to do it. Lord, tell me what to do. If you tell me to stay, I'll stay. And then the text of Scripture in verse 2 gives us this interesting account, something that you and I don't experience in the course of prayer. And that is the revelation of God's will, very specifically and audibly. The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. That's as direct as it could possibly be. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David, there's no question. I didn't tell you to stop off. I didn't tell you to go here and get these men. I didn't tell you to go and amass more weapons. I told you to go and to save the people. Go do it, David. It's simple and it's direct. And the thing that I want to tell you is that there are two things that we see here in the text of Scripture that I believe are quite clear for the discerning and the seeking of the direction of God. And the first of them is prayer. And then the second of them is the Word of God. Prayer and the Word of God. And I'm going to again and again return to this in all three of the points. Prayer and the Word of God. You and I don't need an ephod to ask this sort of thing of God. We don't need Urim and Tumim to ask this sort of thing of God. We don't need a priest to intercede to ask this sort of thing of God. Lord, what would you have for me? Lord, what would you have for me in this situation or that situation? What would you have for my family in this or that situation? Lord, lead me, because that's what David is asking. Lord, tell me what I should do. Now, the kids that are here this evening, most of you, probably aren't asking that question yet, unless you're teenagers, and then some of you are asking the question, what college do I go to? Do I enlist in the military? Uh, Do I do this or do that? Do I take this or that small-time job? Every adult knows this question, though. Lord, what do you want me to do? Hard situations constantly come to the people of God, 
And our prayer life ought to be the very first place that we go as a reflex of a sanctified heart. As a thing that's not even a question, but rather the natural culture of the redeemed child of God. Where do you go when you're between a rock and a hard place in a situation where you simply don't know what would be best? You go to the Lord in prayer. You go to the Lord in prayer. But you may be saying, oh, pastor, I hear you saying that. And yeah, okay, I'll go with you. It seems like prayer. He's talking to God. Talking to God is prayer. That's the most basic idea of what prayer is. But God doesn't speak that way. Pastor, I'm a cessationist. I don't believe in the continuing revelation of God. I believe that the scripture holds all of what God has said. I would say amen. God does speak in the 66 books of Scripture, and He has given you His word for direction. That's what I would say to you. And friend, if you want to hear the word of God spoken audibly, read the Bible out loud. Those are the two things that God has intended to direct you, how you should then live. Prayer and the word of God, the only rule of faith and practice. God still ministers meaningfully to his people, and directs them by the Scriptures. And you may say, well, Pastor, I did pray, I did pray. And I prayed a lot. I didn't have one of those short, powerful bolts. I was all over the place, but I still prayed, and I prayed again, and then I read my Bible, and I still came out, and I didn't know what to do. What would be your encouragement there, Pastor? It seems like David says five words, and then God gives him three right back. I would tell you to pray again and read more of your Bible. I tell you to pray again and read more of your Bible and be persistent and plead with the Lord and bring Him before His face as if you're grabbing Him by the hands and looking Him right in the eye and saying, Lord, show me what Your will is for me. You show me in one of the people of Your Holy Word and the things that You've done with them where I should go and how I should act. And God will direct you. He'll direct you in your understanding of Scripture and He will also lead and direct you in the things that you are resolved to do. He'll make things clear to you. And he'll do it by prayer and the word of God. In verses 3 through 5, I want us to consider obeying the Lord's direction. So David has prayed, shot to heaven, received an answer very quickly from the Lord. And it's one of clear mission and action. In the very next verse... Verse 3, as soon as the Lord stops talking, we read, But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we then go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Now, how many times have I encountered this personally and as a minister? Quite a lot. People say, Pastor, I don't know what to do with this situation. Come to my office, we have a phone call, we sit at a table together, they tell me the situation. To me, it's wildly clear. I don't know what to do about this situation. The pastor says, well, maybe you ought to do this. It seems pretty clear from the scripture and the culture that the Bible encourages the people of God to have. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So I say, well, you need to go pray about it. Well, they go pray about it and the word of God convicts them about what should be done and what shouldn't be done and there's some clarity and then... They come back and they say, okay, pastor, I know what to do, but I just don't want to do it. I don't, want to, I don't know if I can do it. And it could be very clear. And, you know, sometimes the conversation that I may, may be having is a conversation regarding sin. Uh, it's just as clear as day. 
struggling with this sin or that sin, with the sin of lust, the sin of the use of pornography, the sin of all sorts of different things. It could be all kinds of different things, but the Bible speaks so clearly to it. I don't know what to do with this, Pastor. I don't know how I should go about it. And I tell you, it seems to me the Bible says stop. It seems to me that an honoring and, and, and God-glorifying life before Him would, would be very direct, and the person they recoil and regarding the sin. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can obey. I think God's been clear. I just... You know, David, I don't want to go against those Philistines. They may kill me. Pastor, I don't know if I can give up this sin in my life. It may kill me. It may take things from me. It may take relationships. It may take, well, financial gain. It may take uh, professional uh, place and all these sorts of things from me. It may take so much from me. Or maybe it's a different sort of thing. Maybe it's not sin. Maybe the young man, the young woman, they come to me and we're talking, or maybe they don't even come to me, and they're struggling over a sense of call of the Lord. I think I ought to be doing something. I think the Lord's called me to something. Is it missions? Is it ministry? Is it service in the church? Is it teaching children? Is it teaching men? Is it teaching women? And they do the thing that a good Christian ought to do, a prayerful Christian, to pray and study the Word of God. And then in the midst of all the praying and all the reading of the Word of God, they understand the mission's clear. It's simple, it's direct, but they just can't obey and they hold back and they wait. Because the Lord may answer all those different leadings where you feel all of these things and it's a sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit. And He may be saying to you, friend, go to sub-Saharan Africa. Friend, go to India. Go to Germany. Go to Scotland. Go evangelize those crazy people in the United States of America. And you say, I don't know. I got friends, I got family, I got wealth, I own a house. I got all these different things, Lord. It's going to cost me everything. I'm going to have to give it all up. I'm going to have to divest. Lord, how can I do it? I'm afraid if I do that, then when I go, what's it going to be, Lord? What's it going to be? How's it going to, how's it going to work out for me? And that's what's gripping the heart of David's men. We feel like we're in a safe place where we're in the woods. We can't be seen. We're like Robin Hood and his merry men. But if we go out, David, if we go out, you know, Saul's crazy and he's coming. And the Philistines are bad, bad guys. What do we do? What does David do? Well, I think he prays with them. He inquires of the Lord. And it's a very simple, very clear prayer. Right in front of the men. We're not even told what he says. But we get the Lord's answer. Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Again, the mission clearly displayed to these simple men. You go do what I said. And if you're overwhelmed with fear, you just hear this testimony of victory. When you go, you are going to then deliver those people out of the hands of the Philistines. You're going to win. It's absolutely certain. You go, you be obedient, you arise, get up and you go. I'm going to be the one that does the work for you. There's no reason for your fear. You just need to be obedient. What I want to say to you, friend, I want to say this. 
The thing that gets in the way of obeying the clear direction of God is almost always fear. It's fear about our weakness. It's fear about our loss. It's fear, fear about our inadequacy. It's fear about the hardness of the enemies of, of us as people or the enemies of God or the hardness of a nation. It's all these sorts of things and all the things that go and swirl in the mind and infect the soul against a life lived in humble obedience to the Lord. And God would say, look at me. I've got power to do all these things. It's not up to you. You just go and I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So how does God help fearful people obey him by prayer and by his word? It's clear. Verses of scripture like this ought to encourage and hearten my brother and sister as they consider international ministry away from family. And it ought to encourage you. And it ought to encourage me. We ought to be people that hear the word of God, this kind of testimony, and feel as if we're bulletproof until God ordains that we die. Third in the passage of Scripture, we see David relying on the direction of God, verses 6 through 14. David goes out. It's quite simple. After he's inquired, we read in verse 5 that he and his men went to Keilah and they fought with the Philistines. And they brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. I was listening to another sermon and reading a, a commentator. Both of them make this, uh, this point that it seems like David is so effective with his men in this battle that they don't only fight against the Philistines, they don't only win a victory, they don't only drive them out of the land, but that they pursue them. Because the point was made was made that was made was this, that not too many armies take a great deal of livestock, especially not in the ancient world, into a siege of a city. And yet here David is described as having a real and complete victory over these people, even further enriching the people who have had their grain stolen from the threshing floor. The battle's been won, but there's David, and he's in the city of Keilah. And this man, Aviathar, the son of Ahimelech, you know those priests in Nob, He's the only survivor that the Bible tells us about, and he comes and he flees to David, comes to Keilah. They've already had a conversation where David confessed to him that he felt responsible for all of these things happening to his family and this great tragedy that even whenever he went to Ahimelech, that he knew that it would come to take place. And as he comes, we're told that he comes with an ephod in his hand. Now, do you know what an ephod is? It's a priestly garment. Uh, some people will identify the ephod only with the high priest, but the ephod is a priestly garment. It's like a long shirt, like a holy shirt. Um, not quite as long as like a preaching gown, but something similar, if you understand what I mean. It's long and it's made of linen. It's specific to the task at hand of the priest. And here he is, he runs with this, and it's a symbol uh, of a priest, and it's something often worn by priests whenever they inquire of the Lord. If you've ever seen a depiction of the priest, you'll see he has a, a white tunic, and on top of that there is a, a blue tunic. That's the ephod. And then on his chest he's got a square breastplate with various stones that symbolize the tribes of, of Israel. 
He comes with the ephod. The priesthood remains. The priesthood remains. We go on and we read that after uh, Aviathar comes, that in verse 7 it was told uh, to Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul immediately, in the wickedness of his heart, continues to act against David and says, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. He feels like he's gotten David in a corner. He's got him in a place where he can't run. He's just in his backyard. He's there in Judah. It's no time. It's not hard to get to him. It's not like the cave in the Cursed Valley. No, he's there. He's right near me. Yes, it seems as if finally to the twisted mind of Saul that he can come and attack his most faithful servant. We read in verse 8 that Saul summoned all the people to go to war to go down against David. And then David, knowing that Saul was plotting harm against him, calls Aviathar, the priest, and he says something to him that's quite different than anything we've seen in 1 Samuel so far. He asks him, not... Will you inquire of the Lord for me? After all, you're a priest, and this is what your father did for me. No. He says, bring me the ephod. And there are a couple of different ways we can explain this. After all, David felt a weight in his heart that his actions, as he asked Ahimelech, the father of Aviathar, to pray for him, that caused the whole downfall of the priesthood in Nob. Everybody's killed and it's, it's David's fault. And it would seem that one way to understand why David asked for this ephod. No, you don't wear it. You give it to me so that Aviathar has no accountability for the aid given to David. It's on David now. David will take the risk. David will inquire of the Lord. He will act as a priest and a king at once. He's going to come before the Lord dressed as kings don't normally dress. And if you hear priest and king in one man, and you think, wow, this sounds like somebody else, you're right. This is the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament. A bare and dim resemblance of what Christ would do whenever He came to know the people and and they're being exposed to the wrath of a much more dangerous God who reigns in heaven and to stand between them in danger by wearing an ephod. It's it's there. It's just a shadow. It's It's a passing mention. We're not told that He has the Urim and the Tubim. We're not told that He has the breastplate or any of the other priestly adornments. But simply David says, bring it to me. It's my work now. And what does David do knowing that the Philistines have been disposed of? The Lord has given him into his hand. But Saul's coming. Saul's coming. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And we even have the larger portion of his prayer here mentioned. And again, it's like he's taking a whole quiver of arrows and he's just shooting them to heaven. Again and again, these short, compact prayers asking questions. Of the Lord. O Lord, verse 10. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. You know, do you notice this? He doesn't say he's coming to destroy me. There's some faith in his calling and in the work of God in his life. 
He's concerned for the city. He goes on and he asks the Lord, Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord's response is clear and inscrutable. He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? The Lord said, They will surrender you. Now, I don't know if you could take for a moment and put yourself in the shoes of David, this man behaving as king like a priest, and he hears, yes, Saul is coming. The enemies that you have within your own people are going to turn against you, and even those who are your kinsmen are going to despise you and give you over into the hands of a wicked man. When you put it like that, it sounds an awful lot like another king. Praying to the Lord, sweating, groaning under the weight of it in a garden, in prayer. But that's what you have with David. He's already gone through the battle. He's already gone through many travails and many hardships. His heart toward God, it's not exhausted at all. It's all he can rely on. He doesn't look to the men and say... Get ready for battle. Take all of the weapons and the arms from the armory. Let's go. Let's get ready. Let's pound the shields. Let's enforce the walls. No, not at all. Let's pray. And let's hear from the Lord. And it's prayer and the Word of God that then gives him a heart to act. God doesn't tell him to turn to the left nor to the right, but David, in response to the regular teaching of the Word of God, if you don't go, as it were, they're going to come. And if you don't go, they will turn you over. We're told in response to that, David does what? Takes his men, 600, and they go wherever they can go. Pretty basic in the way that they say it. And they leave, and the plan of Saul is completely overturned. And Saul as a leader looks like he's about this tall and about this powerful. He's a failure. And there is David, one step closer, submissive to God in prayer, responsive to the word of God, and a defender of the people of God according to his calling. How does God help us to rely on his word? Well, he proves again and again and again that he's faithful to it. Prayer and the word of God. That's how any of us should act. Even if the word isn't directive, we can hear and pray and act and be faithful. And I encourage you to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful testimony of your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you were powerful in the day of David. We thank you that we know even more so that you were a God active. Oh, Lord, a God more wonderfully gracious, a God more prolifically personal to us through Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, you have given us a testimony of victory. Lord, your word has spoken of a day, a day of glory where Christ is going to come again. Lord, where those who have been oppressed and murdered will no longer cry out, How long, how long, O Lord, but there will be a day, a day of justice and a day of grace. Lord, that your people can simply pray and live and act according to your word. 
Lord, we pray that you would give us courage. Help us to be people who would obey you. Help us to be people who would rely on you. Well, Father, help us to not look to our own weaknesses or our own fear, but rather to your strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.